Usually when we play that music, Freddie, it's because we're uh, featuring our friend uh, Ian Thomas. Mm-hmm. For many, many years, Ian's been showing up on the show. Uh, we've had him on every, almost every incarnation of our program on terrestrial radio, on satellite radio. And sometime in the last 12 years, I'm sure we've had him on the podcast. But today, it's his... Uh, I got, you know, here's the thing. I would say, like, one of the other guys in his family... And uh, we're, we're, we're pleased to finally get around to another member of the Thomas family. Say hi to Dave Thomas. Hi, Dave. Hey, how are you? And, you know, just for a point of clarification, there's only two of us. Ah. So there's no other members of our family living or around that you could get other than Ian or I. Well, yeah. Ian's been, as Howard said, Ian's been on the show many times. And what a sweet man he is. And very funny as yes. well. Um, oh, I think he's funnier than me, that's for sure. Well, that's what he says, but I don't know if I believe him. Um, <laughs> Ian's been on many times. I was going to say the same thing as Fred. Ian's, Ian's always been very kind with his time and has performed live on our show. We've had lots of uh, fun conversations. And we just thought it was time that we, uh, that we talked to you. And thank you again for being on the show. And I, I want to get right to it, you know, because, you know, I've, Fred and I have both been looking at your history and all the things that you've done, all the different parts of your career. But I wanted to start with this question. Do you think that no matter what you've done, that you'll always be associated with SCTV? Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. And probably also always associated with Bob and Doug McKenzie. I mean, you know, once something like that hits, it's sort of what you know, um, Entertainment Tonight will do in their sort of, they'll put SCTV in brackets. Dave, SCTV Thomas. So you know what's the main thing you're known for when you see those sort of things in uh, the media. And, you know, sometimes artists, uh, they don't like to play their hits at their concerts, and that upsets the audience. That doesn't bother you at all? what you are known for or what has stuck the most? Well, I don't have any hits that I can play. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe it would, or I I don't know. Yeah, it it was sort of, you know, a body of work done with a a lot of other people. Yeah. And it's really hard to sort of single out my hits in that, in that particular show. Well, I do want to get Mm -hmm. to, um, the, the the people in the world of comedy that think about that talk about SCTV. I want to get to that later about how well respected it was. But I was mm-hmm. living out west in, in Western Canada, and at some point I became aware that you guys had started shooting that show for a period of time at I think it was ITV Studios in Edmonton. Is that not correct? That is correct. And and at the time you guys moved from Toronto. Was that not during the time where SCTV finally got picked up by an American network? Actually, no. The, right after, we got canceled by Global after our second season. Because um, I guess they figured it was just too expensive. Con- and considering they were only paying 30000 a show, <clears throat> I think they could have afforded it. <laughs> but anyway, um, so we had nothing for a little, for a few months, and it looked like the show was over. And then Andrew got connected somehow. Andrew Alexander mm-hmm. got connected somehow 
with this eccentric doctor in um, Edmonton, Charles Allard, That's who right. owned ITV, and talked him into it, and he said, yeah, sure. So then we went out to do our third season um, on at Edmonton, and um, all the cast didn't come. I mean, John Candy went off to do his own show on CTV, Big City Comedy. Um, Andrea Martin and Eugene Levy went to L.A. to do pilots. And Catherine O'Hara decided to take a year off. She didn't want to do the show anymore. And so it was just me and Joe. And we had to find some people, some other people. Well, I found Rick Moranis and Joe found Robin Duke and Tony Rosato. And I said, it's still not going to be good enough. We got to talk. So I talked to Eugene and Andrea into coming to Edmonton to shoot like just a couple of weeks worth of work. Mm -hmm. And then we would take all that stuff and sprinkle it through the whole season and make it seem like they're part of the regular cast, which Mm -hmm. they weren't, you know. But some things happened when we got to Edmonton. There was a kind of a synergy that all of a sudden, you know, um, there was a director named John Blanchard who was really dedicated and and brilliant and all he had done is news shows and cooking shows prior to us but he just rose to the challenge and uh, all of a sudden the look of the show got better and Moranis popped up being a an amazing engine and breath of life to the show when it really needed a breath of life and then something else was going on that I wasn't aware of at that time and that was that Brandon Tartikoff at NBC, who was the president of of that network, um, had noticed the show when it was in syndication in the first and second seasons. And then when he heard that we were going to be in Edmonton, uh, he and Andrew Alexander started talking, and Brandon said, instead of syndication, why don't I put it in our own and operated affiliates, which is... I mean, we were in 48 markets mm. in the U.S. when we were in syndication. Going to the O&Os of NBC put us in 300 American cities. Wow. It was a big jump. But he put us at a weird time. He put us on after SNL, which was good as a lead-in, but it was really late. It was like one in the morning, you know, for our little half-hour show. But the show still got traction. And then after our third season, there was another couple of months where there was some doubt about the show and what was going to. But again, I didn't know that Tartikoff was working on a a deal where he wanted to put he he was worried that SNL was going to fall apart. And he had had a couple of seasons, three seasons with SNL and um he and Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi left, and I think Gilda left. And then he started to think, well, I better, I better get a replacement show ready for this because he liked owning the uh, Saturday so you, night. So you guys were kind of like a farm club in his mind, that he would be able to sort of either Absolutely. put you, some of you guys in or, or just put the whole yeah. show in. Yeah. And he, had, he was a fan of Candy's, and he had... Candy went and did big city comedy for CTV, which was just a bust. That was, that didn't go anywhere. And um, so 
Candy started Tarkov talked to Candy first and said, I wanted to show you guys with that cast that you did for your first two seasons. That's the cast I want. Mm -hmm. And he said, and maybe that other kid that joined Moranis too. And so Rick and I had in the vacuum of having a deal had developed a chemistry in the third season of SCTV. We created Bob and Doug and we did a bunch of other duo uh, things together, just the two of us. And so we had a chemistry. So we went to L.A. and we met with Harvey Shepard at CBS. And um, I'd done a show with Harvey uh, in 1980, and Harvey liked SCTV, liked me, and he liked Rick. So we were talking to him, and we were going to do a, a like a kind of a Smothers Brothers show, mm-hmm. Rick and me. Meanwhile, Tartikoff is talking to Candy, and now Candy's got Joe Flaherty and Catherine O'Hara and and Eugene Levy all worked up and excited. And then Candy calls us in L.A., and he says, uh, guys, we got a 90-minute show on NBC. And we're like, whoa, we're in L.A., we got our own thing going, and 90 minutes, oh, that's a, oh, that's a... That's a handful. Well, because you guys have been you'd been doing thirty minute episodes. Yeah, and not even twenty two. <laughs> it's like twenty three, whatever it is after commercial content. So ninety minutes was a big leap. So Rick and I talked about it, and um, we thought that the, these people, Eugene, Joe, Catherine, Candy, were Andrea, were really talented and we thought we're going to roll the dice which way are we going to go do our own two-hander I I think I kind of pushed Rick harder to come to Toronto so anyway we went to Toronto but we were the last two to arrive they already had offices and things were already up and running uh, when we got there but they actually weren't up and running because Andrew Alexander had said, we're going to do a 90-minute show. We need some writers. Eugene and Catherine firmly believed that um, the sh- that the cast had always written the show, and that was the only way it could be, mm-hmm. which Andrew said, well, that's good if it's a half-hour show. Maybe you could do that. But a 90-minute show, I don't know if the cast can write its own show and shoot and and deliver. Um so anyway, I get there, and there's a stack of scripts that have been written by the writers, and they've they've never even been read. They've never even been table read. And I'm looking at this, and it it the cast had been away from each other for a while, and um, Candy didn't really know Moranis, and so it was basically a group of people sitting at a conference table kind of with their guns on the table. Like, you know, let's hear your funny thing, you mm-hmm. know, and nothing was getting approved. And the network, meanwhile, was saying, hey, we got to see some scripts. NBC is like, what's going on? Where are the scripts? Andrew's like, where are the scripts? What's going on? And we're like, well, uh, we don't, we haven't got anything yet. And so... Andrew came to me because I'd been the head writer in the third season. And he said, Dave, 
Um, I talked to the cast about you producing the show, and they didn't want you to produce. They didn't want you to have the hire and fire control over them. And I said, well, you might have talked to me before you went to them. Mm. Now that makes me look like Machiavelli, you know. And um, he said, but I, but I asked him if they would approve you being head writer. And, um, and they said, yeah, sure, to that. And so I did have some ideas, basically kind of administrative ideas um, on how to run the show that I so I said to Andrew I'll do it but you got to pay me more because this is going to be a hell yeah, of, of course. a job and, and well, Dave not, you not often, to, yeah, go ahead Fred you no know, I'm saying you often hear those stories about Saturday Night Live you know comedy's hard and when you're up against the deadline it even becomes harder even that story about Seinfeld right where they pitch the show and then all of a sudden they're told to do 26 and it's it's tough it's it's not it easy and that's the position that you guys were in yeah just for and, 90 minutes. <laughs> and look, the the reality of it is, I mean, in the third season, I sat there. I mean, I, I was co-head writer in the second season with Harold, with uh, Joe Flaherty. And Harold Ramis was the head writer in the first season. Harold was brilliant. Mm-hmm. He was a very, very... Yeah, did he special. ever go on to do anything? I, I don't recall anything he's done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, other yeah, than, you know, Ghostbusters and a few things. I don't really... Did he ever have a he career? Was, he was a one-hit wonder. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, uh, when, when Harold left, he told Andrew, he said, you should get Joe and Dave to be head writers and Andrew said, I was the youngest and least experienced in the cast. I mean, I had more experience writing because I'd been a copy, copywriter in advertising and stuff like that, but and done some stuff for the CBC. But I was the least experienced with Second City, with the stage show. And Andrew said, why? Why?" He said, Joe, I can see he's the senior member. Why Joe and Dave? And Harold said, because Joe will quit in three months because <laughs> <laughs> Joe just, he doesn't like those kind of jobs, you know, he's brilliant right. and very creative, but the idea of like, you know, taking a production board with a bunch of empty cards and filling it up with uh, scripts and going around and kind of coercing people. Now, hold on. That's a stupid phone. Yeah, no, it's okay. Um, listen, I, I want to just I want to stop you just just because we have so many things we want to talk to you about, and and not that we I, when I when I think of SCTV and I think of your roles in it and all the things that you've done from writing and producing and all the seasons. Just a couple quick things, though, Dave, if you can answer. When did yeah. you realize? So we got to the fact that you got on NBC. It became three times the size of the show you were doing. So two things. When did you realize that? This was bigger than sort of a, I don't know, I want to say cult, but, but a, it, where, where it became a bigger show, where it became a bigger deal that you were getting some notoriety. And as I said at the beginning, it's one of those things that some of the biggest names of the last 30, 40 years in comedy often refer to SCTV as sort of the gold standard in that kind of television. So let's talk a little bit about that. So first of all, when did you realize that things had gone a bit bigger than you would first anticipated, and what do you think about the legacy of it? Okay, there's a couple of different questions in there. The first one is, 
we didn't realize even at the 90 minute show that we had something that was going to be lasting because we thought it was going to fall apart and it looked like it was plus we had to go back to Edmonton to shoot this 90 minute show which was you know not exactly like going to LA or New York (laughs) so we're back in Edmonton and we're working and the, it was so onerous. There was so much work to be done, so much writing, so much performing. We were literally, literally going seven days a week. So we didn't have any time, and we just assumed nobody was watching the show like it was when it was a half hour. Then all of a sudden, we start to get feedback. And then the show gets nominated for Emmys. Now all of a sudden, uh-oh, things have changed, you mm-hmm. know? And... and Rick and I had a really interesting thing. We got a call from, I forget, I think it was the Rough Riders uh, in Which one's, Ottawa or Saskatchewan? Saskatchewan. (laughs) Okay. And it was like, um, hey, do you guys want to come as Bob and Doug McKenzie and have drinks with the cheerleaders? And we thought, well, that's a short hop from Edmonton, and how could that be a bad evening at drinks with the cheerleaders? Mm -hmm. So we went. And when we got off the plane, there were like, I don't know, a couple of thousand people there cheering for Bob and Doug. And we were like, holy shit, what is this? Yeah. That was our first um, inkling that Bob and Doug uh, had broken. And we're driving to meet the cheerleaders, and we go to under an overpass outside Regina, I guess it was. And it says, take off graffiti. (laughs) Uh, And there's no graffiti in Canada. We're like, what the hell is this? So then my brother was, as you guys know, because you played pilot at the beginning of this interview, he was uh, a recording artist for this company, uh, Anthem Records. I guess it was GRT then. I'm not sure. But anyway, Mm -hmm. uh I said to Rick, I'd been trying to get the cast to do a album because I was a fan of the old comedy albums of Jonathan Winters and uh, Peter Sellers and people like that. I always wanted to do a comedy album and nobody ever had time and nobody was really interested. And I said that to Rick and Rick said, well, let's do it as the McKenzie Brothers. So we did an album and we went to my brother's um, boss at Anthem, which was Ray Daniels. And said, "Would you, would you um, distribute this album?" And well, we were so naive; we didn't know. He knew that these characters are on NBC every week. Mm-hmm. They're self-promoting. <laughs> that is exactly what a record company is looking for. So anyway, yeah, it was like a dream come true for them. Yeah. So we did the album. Next thing we know, it goes gold. Then it goes platinum. Then it was like, what the hell? So now stuff is happening very fast between the Emmys and Bob and Doug and things like and we are now all of a sudden the show is like a runaway buckboard to use an old western <laughs> you know what I mean yeah yeah, yeah. Like, somebody get the reins pull this thing in we where is this going and we had no control we had no idea of yeah. how to it just it just it happened so that the original motivation, though, of SCTV, did you guys, because you said, you know, global box at $30,000, how much money is there in Canada? Is the motivation at the beginning to do this show 
sort of as a showcase to somehow get in the States because all our best end up there. Was that the idea? And then very few people does it actually happen. And then as you describe this, bang, 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 it all just explodes. Okay. Candidly, I think if somebody goes into entertainment, they go into entertainment because they want to have a connection with an audience. And whether you live in Canada or whether you live in the UK or whether you live in China or India, the U.S. market is the gold standard for entertainment. So, of course, everybody wants to go there. I mean, there's no disputing that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Of course. And so we we had seen our peers. Like, I, I was in the stage cast with Dan Aykroyd and um, Gilda Radner and... Um, and those people, we'd seen them go to SNL and become big stars. Mm-hmm. So, of course, we were looking at that. And, of course, that was, you know, in everybody's minds. It was like, <laughs> it was funny that the first two seasons were not that at all. And we were in 48 markets. The show was really kind of a failure. We didn't know that it was a that it had a cult following and that there were some fans of it. We had no idea. Dave, if you don't they, mind, if I can inter- interject there, I want to pick up on something you just said about your peers, Aykroyd and, and Andrea Martin. Yeah. You'd been in Godspell with them. They were peers of yours. When, when you when you see somebody, and Paul Schaefer is the musical director, when something like that happens, where somebody that you were sort of on par with now becomes some of the... In 1975, Dan Aykroyd, Andrea Martin become some of the biggest stars in entertainment. And then as the years go by, does that give you, I don't want to say hope, but in a weird way, do you think, well, wait a second, if they can do it, what's stopping me from doing it? Well, sure. I mean, Bernie Sollins and Andrew Alexander started SCTV because Lorne Michaels started SNL. So it was, Lorne was was pirating cast from the Second City stage show mm-hmm. for his television show. So Bernie Sons is, why don't we do our own show? So, you know, <laughs> we, you know, we did. Only at that time, there was really room for only one late night sketch comedy show. So our little half hour offering kind of got, you know, was a very far uh, second banana, very distant cousin to that, to SNL. And so, but you're right. I mean, you look at them and you go, well, I was on the stage with these people. And so why can't I do that too? You know? And, um, but you know what? The weird thing is you always get into the, you know, into the work. The, the work is like a, um, it stops you from those kind of thoughts if it's intense enough. And you're worried about, is this sketch funny? Not, am I going to be famous? It's just like, does this work? Am I, is this character believable? Am I, you know what I mean? So we were working on our little show and we were trying to make it work more than I think we were trying to, um, pave a road to the United States. And and big money. I mean, a lot of artists say that in, in all genres. It's, you know, the money comes with the success of the art. And uh, unless you pour your 
brains into that, then the other thing won't come with it. And uh, and you end up in the United States and then your career just blossoms from there, like beyond SCTV, all these other doors open as well. Yeah, and you get like more money and more exposure, a bigger audience, and uh, yeah, yeah. There's there's all that, you know. Um, by the time I came, I first came to Los Angeles um, before C- SCTV had really hit, but Animal House had hit. So mm-hmm. all the movie studios thought anybody that was involved with either National Lampoon, Second City, or SNL. Uh, was somebody that they wanted to work with? Yeah, exactly. You were well. So, you were you were the right age and kind of the right genre at a time in not just television, as you say, when all these studios were trying to produce or replicate the success of a kind of college style humor. I just got to stop, and if you don't mind for a second, Dave, you know I've been such a fan of yours, Fred, as well. I'm sure watching SCTV for a long time, and again, we've been friendly with your brother. But when I listen to you talk now. I don't know if this is the same for our audience or Fred, but of all the impressions I've loved that you do over the years, one of the ones that used to blow me away is Bob Hope. And just listening to you talk, there's a little bit of, for me, there's a little Bob Hope in your cadence. And I, maybe that's why you were so good at it. But do you know what I mean? We were in the, we're in the same, and then now I'm getting up in there. Yeah. We're in the same sort of pitch and vocal range, you know. I ended up working with Hope and doing shows with him. And I remember That's amazing. His, hearing, his hearing was really bad at this point. He was gone. And he turned to me and he said, at one point, he said, you know, he said, you're the only guy around here that I can hear. <laughs> and I said, I said, yeah, but that's because I, I, my voice is similar to yours and you just like the sound of your own voice. And he chuckled at that. Yeah, he said, ah, that could be true. Yeah, that could be true. So, I mean... I I used to do a very just, just an improv impersonation of Bob Hope being entertaining the troops but doing some weed and saying I'm higher than the DMZ <laughs> and, and Paul Schaefer loved that and Brian Doyle Murray Bill's brother loved that and I remember Brian said to me when we were doing SCTV he said you should do Bob Hope he said you can do Bob Hope I said no I've no, I, can't, I don't look like him I can't I don't think I could. And um, he said, no, no, no. And so he talked me into it. And Brian Murray and I wrote the Bob Hope Desert Classic because it took two elements of Bob's career right. that were very important to him, put them together, which was golf and war. And so, <laughs> so Brian knew golf because he, he was one of the writers of Caddyshack and a golfer, and he knew all that. And so Brian helped me with the golf stuff. I did the political stuff. And we did the Bob Hope yeah. Desert Classic. It wasn't until I did that that I realized, oh, I guess right. I can do this guy. Yeah, very much well, so. What's that like, Dave? Like, I mean, you, what, born in St. Catharines, Hamilton area, whatever. And then I see in your notes here, you're a, a, what, a writer for an advertising agency. You get bored with the job. And a great job, obviously, by a lot of people's standards. But you leave that job and then all of a sudden you're in a room with Bob Hope, like, that's got to be crazy. It's unbelievable. You know what I mean? I mean... Yeah. I used to tape Bob's movies. I was such a fan of Bob Hope 
that I had an old reel-to-reel tape recorder and a microphone that I would hang on a piece of string on the um, the the dial of the TV, which placed it right in front of the speaker. And I would mm-hmm. tape his monologues and listen to them. And so, you know, and I, I was a student of comedy. And so the idea that, you know, one day I would be doing a special with Jonathan Winters or one day I would yeah. do a series of different shows with Bob Hope... Those were like faraway dreams for me when I was in Dundas because if I told any of my friends that, that I was dreaming mm-hmm. of doing, they would have laughed mm-hmm. and said, oh, right. you're insane. Yeah, it seems you know, impossible. I mean, yeah, the distance from Dundas to Hollywood is like, you know, imagining yourself traveling to Mars, for God's sake. Yeah, and, so. and, and be, I'm from, listen, I, I'm, you know, we're, Fred and I, I grew up in a small town in Saskatchewan, Moose Jaw, and, you know, we, I can I can sort of relate because sometimes we've had the pleasure of speaking to people like you. And, if you know, if I'd have been told my moose jaw self one day I'd be talking to Dave Thomas, I wouldn't have believed it. But here we are. Is there a time, though, and I want to say too esoterically, but when you're in those situations after, you know, all three, you know, we're looking at your uh, it's all the things you've done and the people you've met and worked with. Is there a moment when you're in a room with Bob Hope or Bill Murray or somebody who's in a, in a and is there, t- do you recognize that and think, wow, Dundas Dave Thomas wouldn't have believed this shit at all? Like, do you recognize well, it? Yeah. Like I said, that's sort of like what I was talking about earlier about, you know, the job at hand. You do have those moments where you go, I can't believe this. I'm actually <laughs> in a room working with Bob Hope. And then, the job will be like, okay, I got nose to the grindstone. Got to get back to work here. And then you get pulled back to the reality of what it is you're doing, you know? Um, so, I mean, I had a moment with uh, Bob where his daughter, Linda, we were doing a show and they'd written a monologue for me as, uh, as Bob's nephew or something like that, Chester Hope. And, um, Linda said when Bob was going through the script, he read that monologue and he said, he said, hey, here, for the, for this earthquake joke, do that bit. You know, um, I danced around the house and then the house danced around me. And Linda said, uh, Bob, that's not your monologue. That's <laughs> Dave Thomas's monologue. He's impersonating you. And Bob said, oh, yeah. Well, do it anyway. If he's going to do me, he should do me the way I would do me. <laughs> That's so, great. I mean, you know, when you hear stories like that, and then you, and then I ended up sitting with him for a weird shooting a show at NBC, and they they actually took the Carson set out on Friday night, and Saturday we were in doing a Bob Hope special in that same uh, studio. Wow! Uh, in at NBC. And so for the break, you know, and Bob's older now, but he's still with it. And the thing about him is a lot of people assume older people don't hear as well. That means they're not with it. They, they, they got dementia. Those are all separate issues. So I was able to connect with him because I could he could hear me. <clears throat> and so we're sitting at this table and um, they break for lunch and the producer comes and says, hey, Bob, we're breaking for lunch. You want to... Uh, yeah. And Bob said, what are they having? And he said, pizza. And Bob said, nah, I don't, I don't want any of that. And he, he said, well, what do you want to do? And Bob said, I'll just stay here. 
because he just he didn't want to get up and move. He just wanted to sit at this table. <laughs> he said, "Dave, what about you? You want?" I said, "No, no, I'll stay here with Bob." So I t- it was just the two of us sitting Amazing. there talking mm. in the lunch break for an hour, and you know I talked to him about things that I'd always wanted to know, and I asked him some questions. And <laughs> at one point, I asked him, I said, "Hey, Bob, how come you never played Vegas?" Because that was always something that puzzled me. That he was a guy that did Boy Scout breakfasts and appeared anywhere where they'd give him twenty-five grand for an hour or whatever. And he, I said, "How come you never played Vegas?" And he looks at me. He goes, well, "Why do you want to know?" Which is very typical of Hope. You know, he, he gives yeah. you that pushback. And I said, "Well, now I'm kind of stuck." And then I just said, "Well," and I'd actually heard this. I said. Well, I heard that maybe it had something to do with Dolores and her being a devout Christian and Vegas being Sin City. And he gets mad at me and he goes, he goes, she, she has, she has no say in anything that I do. And I was like, okay, Jesus Christ. Easy, Bob. <laughs> and, and Bob says, he said, you want to know why, I'm not, why I never played Vegas? I'll tell you. He said, you know, around about 19, 1960 or something like that. He said, I had this idea for a show where I'd be the highest paid entertainer to ever play in Vegas. And my people talk to their people. And they never, you know, <laughs> they couldn't come to an agreement. So I just said, screw it. I never went near it. And it was like, I was laughing because I was thinking his idea for a show was not a brilliant creative idea for a show. His idea for a show was just that he would be the <laughs> that was his idea. entertainer <laughs> to ever play in Vegas. That's funny, during man. That, during that hour, did he ask you any questions about you? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Oh, yeah, yeah. But he was, you know, pretty self-absorbed. Right. You know what I mean? He, yeah. uh, I have a, another, I was at his house one time, and Entertainment Tonight came there. And they did an interview with us at his house. And um, I knew that it would end up being, you know, five seconds on Entertainment Tonight. And mm-hmm. we talked to this interviewer for about an hour. So there's a thing that they call the B-roll, which is the whole interview. Right. And I, I knew the guy, uh, the cameraman and the other guy from Entertainment Tonight. And I said, hey. Can I get a copy of the B-roll? And they said, yeah, yeah, for you, sure. So they sent me a tape, and I still have it. Nice. Oh, that's I got this tape precious. of mm. me and Hope talking to this guy and sitting at his house, and yeah, it's pretty cool. So, Bob Hope, you mentioned Donathan Winters, all comedic heroes of yours. What about nowadays? Who, who, who would be your comedy favorites nowadays? And do you like well, the way comedy is gone? Okay, there's two questions there. Yeah, yeah. Comedy went through a very... It, it's still in kind of a dark era. And what happened was when the sort of politically correct movement and the, and the woke movement became, you know, the driving force in American culture and entertainment, it affected comedy. And a lot of my friends who were stand-ups couldn't do colleges anymore because comedy always pushes the boundaries. And... Mm-hmm. You can't push the boundaries in a room full of kids that are looking for something. They're scanning their phones while you're talking, looking for the next thing that's going to offend them that they can protest or tweet about. You know, so comedy started to become, you know, uh, it became a narrower field. And a lot of comedians 
got attacked for Seinfeld told me he just quit. He wouldn't do the road stuff anymore. Wouldn't do colleges or those gigs because he just get he would get booed or uh, and he's pretty middle of the road, you know. Mm-hmm. And then guys like Dave Chappelle really got nailed, and um, so comedy went through a dark, through a tough, and it's still in that trough. Now, there are guys like Will Ferrell, who I think is very funny, mm-hmm. and who always made, made it and it managed to do stuff and make people laugh and, and survive. But a lot of a lot of comedians got... You know, I, I'm not surprised that... I, I'm really, I'm not surprised that Will Ferrell is uh, somebody you admire. I do, too, because there's a, if I say, like a whimsical SCTV vibe about... Will Ferrell. Would you not agree? Like Will Ferrell and Kristen Wiig and Amy Poehler, Tina Fey, they could easily have been cast members of SCTV because they have that sort of same DNA. And you can, because there's some characters on Saturday Night Live that have a harder edge. And that was one of the things I always uh, admired about SCTV is that the comedy was very smart and very like you reminded me also when you mentioned the Bob Hope movie one of the things you guys did and I know I'm gonna I'm digressing now when you guys would do those full length movie parodies like you just don't see sketch shows do that kind of really in-depth layered you know what I'm talking about Freddie where where I don't know how long they were but they were full movie parodies Anyway, that's what I wanted yeah. to say is that some of those performers you I just mentioned, you could easily see them being part of a show like yours. Well, yeah, and there's a lot of them like Bill Hader, who I really admire. Yes. I mean, he's a he's an amazing mimic and he has a fantastic voice. And there's a couple of things that you can Google on on the Internet and where he's being interviewed and he's asked about, you know, Al Pacino. And OK, he you see it in his eyes. His eyes change, and he becomes Al Pacino. And he does the same thing with his Schwarzenegger. And I could tell when I saw that. I met him later, and we talked about this. But um, I could tell that it was that he wasn't just doing the voice. The impressions that we did on SCTV, we tried to get inside these people's heads. And that was what drove the impression. So that I could improvise as Bob Hope. Because I I got I I knew so much about him that I could play him. The same thing with Michael Caine. I I love Michael Caine, and I could do Michael Caine because oh, no problem at all doing the dialect. That's no problem for me a bit. But I also got into his head. Yeah. You know, Walter Cronkite. I love Walter, Walter Cronkite, and I got into his head with respect to his love of space and science and things like that. So I always made sure that I infused my impressions with that stuff. So when I see, like somebody asked, um, uh, who was it? Uh, it, it was uh, Alec Baldwin's Trump, which I never right. did. I, I I I didn't like that, and they asked Norm Macdonald about Alec Baldwin's Trump, and Norm said, "I don't like it." And they said, "Why?" He said, "Because when you do an impersonation of somebody, there has to be part of you that likes that person, mm-hmm. so that you can connect with them." He said, "He does Trump just like a like he's a buffoon," and he said, "It's very clown like and very." 
sort of heavy footed and heavy handed. And, you know, I thought, yeah, that's absolutely true, you know. And um, so there's impersonations and then there's impersonations. There's parodies and there's parodies. And caricatures, yes. So you guys, uh, you and Moranis recently have done a commercial here for brewers that's in right, Canada. That's right. You're back. I mean, that that's that's got to be wacky, too. I mean, that, you know, those characters developed how many years ago? What, pushing 50 years now? 44. Now, and and here you are being asked, and I imagine they asked you, and you're doing beer commercials in Canada. In Rick and I were laughing at that. I mean, yeah. we're on the phone literally giggling that 44 years later that <laughs> these characters still have some relevance enough that somebody's willing to pay us to do radio spots, you know? And, um, yeah, we thought that was very funny. And, um, and, 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 you know, there's statues of Bob and Doug in Edmonton. You know mm-hmm. that. Right? Oh, yeah, we heard that. Of the big skating arena and everything. Full, full-sized statues <laughs> of Bob and Doug. I mean, well, I guarantee not many of my comedy friends have a statue. I was going to say, I guarantee if you lived here in Canada, not a day would go by that somebody would see you and say, like, how's it going, eh? I'm sure every day when you're here, sure. somebody is doing that voice to you. Yeah. And it's amazing how many people that touch. And Bob and Doug were not racy characters. They weren't dark souls or you know, it wasn't very, you know, dark comedy. It was really, really light and fun and, you know, um, PG. It was P. It was PG comedy. That's right. You know? Um, well, listen, my friend, uh, we could talk to you all day, but we're going to have to wrap things up. I uh, can't thank you enough. Um, you know, next time sure. we're talking to Ian, we're going to say that other brother, that brother of yours, he's not, he's not, he's as funny as, at least as funny as you are. Um, <laughs> if I can just finish off by saying, like, I know we could talk about your, all the accomplishments and the animation and the voiceovers and SCTV and all this. But when you look, when, if in your everyday life, when you think about, you know, do you see yourself as an actor, as a comedian, as an executive, as an animation guy? What do you feel your when you when you think of yourself these days? How does that show up for you? I know that was a you no, know, that was a stupid I, I, question, but try and answer. No, it anyway. I'm a writer. I'm basically a writer, much more than a performer. I'm a writer. When I first came to LA, I was writing movies. I got hired to write movies. I wrote Spies Like Us with Dan Aykroyd. I wrote a movie for Joel Silver. I wrote a, a couple of things at Universal. I did half a dozen rewrites for Mike Metavoy. Nice. So, I, I was a copywriter in advertising. I was head writer on SCTV. Writing has always been what drove what drove me. Right, and, and you pre- you prefer that as opposed to being oh, in yeah. front of the camera. Yeah, I mean when when I told you that comedy went through this period where mm. it became so politically correct, it was difficult. I just thought, well, I'm going to move to drama. So I started working on Bones. Mm-hmm. Right, with my friend Hart Hansen. And I was on that show for three years, and then I did the Blacklist. Because I like writing. But is that weird when you're in the writer's room or you're you're doing episodic, dramatic television and people look around and they go, is that, is that Dave Thomas from SCTV? Does that, does that, is that, did you have to get that out of the way right away before you delve into the work no, once it again? Becomes a, it just becomes a joke. After they get used to you, yeah. you know, first couple of days maybe, but there was a guy in the Bones writing room named John Collier who was 
a Simpsons writer and um, uh, Monk. He wrote on Monk. Yeah, great show. And a bunch of he did a bunch of he's a and he was a brilliant writer. And he always used to refer to me as TV's Dave Thomas. <laughs> well, listen, that's where we're going to wrap it up. TV's Dave Thomas, thank you for your time today. What a uh, great pleasure to talk to you. And uh, and when if you're if you're talking to Ian before us, tell him that you were on our show finally, and uh, we uh, we certainly appreciate it. Let me tell you something. While you guys and I were talking, Ian called. I was just going to show you. That's funny. Look at that. Right on. Well, call him back and tell him you were hanging out with us today. I will. Yeah, do, you, do you ever get back to Canada much? Or? Not so much anymore. After my mom passed away, it was like, yeah. now there's only Ian, and I try to lure him down here. Right. And when the weather's bad, that's not too hard. No, exactly. <laughs> um, again, thank you, Dave Thomas. Hopefully this won't be the last time we talk to you, and we certainly appreciate your time. You got it. Take okay, care. Thanks, Dave. Pleasure. Likewise. Likewise.